ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying time is here. That's right, we're talking about Exorcist 3 on Kill by Kill. Well, greetings and salutations, Internet's your old pal, Patrick Hamilton, coming to you once again from our favorite little hamlet, Georgetown. This is the Kill by Kill podcast, where we are dedicated to celebrating the least discussed component of any horror film, the characters. And we're going to unpack all the goriest of details, William Peter Blatty's Exorcist 3, Legion. There's a lot of titles going on in it, depending on which one you're watching, and in the hopes that uh, a pre-suntimely end is just the beginning of the jokes that we can make at their expense. And as always, there's only one person I trust that if I need to get all the blood out of my body. She will make sure to pump my legs extra hard to get every last drop. The one, the only Gina Radcliffe. How are you doing today, Gina? I mean, that's, you know, that's showmanship. (laughs) You know, I'll tell you, I was trying to think of so many clever ways that I could reference the movie Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, my greetings. And there's just, there's too much. I was just thinking (laughs) of, I could tell you I was here to repair your radio. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I could tell you that um, I can't go home because until the carp is asleep. <laughs> there's 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 so many ways I could do it. There could be so many outtakes. There, listen, none of us can go home until the carp is asleep because if you do, you're gonna kill it. it Anyways, swi- it swims up it sw- and down. <laughs> Listen, we're going to talk all about that carp, my favorite monologue in all of cinema. But before we do, Gina, I don't want to alarm you, but we are not alone. That's right. We have a special guest. You, of course, know him from his many years as a writer, a film critic, a, a culture writer at large. He has two newsletters on Substack right now for your reading enjoyment. The one, the only Drew McWaney. How are you doing today, Drew? I am very excited to be here. Thank you very much. I'm so happy to have you here, especially for this motion picture, which I figured uh, because you have spoken so much about the 80s, but this is just beyond the pale into the 90s. It's a, it's a whole new realm. I uh, I actually was a theater manager when this came out, and we played it at our theater to largely empty auditoriums. <laughs> and uh, it gave me a chance to kind of study the movie. Yeah. And my big takeaway at the end of the whatever two weeks, two and a half weeks we had it was that movie is crazy. So <laughs> it absolutely is. It's bug nuts, but such a different version of crazy than Exorcist 2, which we covered a couple of weeks ago. Oh, yeah. Which there's, you know, spitting a hidden tomato out of your mouth. That's Exorcist 2, right? And then there's this where. It's it's more like a, a comedy presentation. It's really about banter and back and forth and acting moments and just giving everything breath. All of the tension comes from mood, atmosphere, and performance. And rather than you know watching a locust in close up fly lazily across all of quote unquote Africa. Well, I think there's a huge difference in the type of Catholicism that you've got in John Borman's background and yeah. uh, William Peter Blatty, who William Peter Blatty is still wrestling with it in a very real and ongoing manner when he's making this movie. Whereas yeah. I think Borman just has that Irish attitude of he is done with it and will have no, will truck none of that nonsense. So yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, different approaches, definitely. Yes. Um, and so, uh, 
you know, the sort of background of how this comes about, Morgan Creek, a production company, uh, I believe at the time they were under 20th Century Fox, uh, they somehow come about the rights to either just the Exorcist in general or specifically William Peter Blatty's Legion novel, which is a sort of spiritual sequel in, in a very literal sense to his original Exorcist. And so in an effort, they think because the exorcist has so much cultural cachet, despite what happened in 1978 with Borman, they're like, let's let's take another swing at this. I think they approach Billy Friedkin at some point and he's like, no, he kind of falls out of the project, even though him and Blatty kind of have a great camaraderie over the years, a rivalry at points, but... They they generally appreciate what the other one brings to the table, and finally they're good sparring partners. Definitely, yes they 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 engage in a way intellectually that the other one feeds off of. Whether they agree, whether they disagree, they at least have a mutual <laughs> yeah. respect society going on. But Blatty's not a, a stranger to the director's chair, and if uh, people in the audience have not had the opportunity to watch the ninth configuration. Uh, I think this has, uh, and the Ninth Configuration have a a lot in common beyond just William Peter Blatty being the director. Well, there's the whole ensemble. He definitely, it feels like a dry run for this in some ways, Mm -hmm. uh, and sort of the dynamics he plays with. And he picks so many of his cast members from the Ninth Configuration to be in this. Um, And it's weird. They're a decade apart, and you feel, and in that time, like a lot of people would become radically different filmmakers you can see how the exact same concerns and the exact same thoughts and the exact same process leads to each of these films. He yeah. is a messy filmmaker. He does not think of things in sort of that elegant, big picture way. He It feels like every scene, he's just in there kind of scrapping it out from the beginning of that scene. Like he has no master plan, but that's kind yeah. of the charm of his movies. There's a spontaneity to them. There's a re, there's both a reality and an unreality to them. Uh, here, it is said on the set that he didn't do a lot of second or third takes. There was a lot of <laughs> one and dones. Like we got it moving on, and that's a joke we often play with uh, on our show. <laughs> the got mm-hmm. it moving on when we find something incongruous. But for whatever reason, with Blatty, he seems to enjoy that. Well, we got it once, and that works for me. And when it, we put it together, if it's disconcerting, well, great. That's what the mood I'm going for. Right, which is, I was going to say, everything feels very nightmarish. Yes. Like, you know, it looks like, you know, you know, a normal place, but you've got just random stuff happening in the background. Like, I can't tell you how many times I watch this, and I keep seeing different things each time like <laughs> yeah. there's a scene where they're just panning through like a hospital and there's a, a nun and she's making these like hand gestures and i would is she what is she is she gesturing at someone she sort of looks like she's doing that you know that code where you kind of move your arms around <laughs> but there's no one with her yeah and i'm like is that something she's just doing on her own was she directed to do that but it's just so many disconcerting is that really happening or is that not really happening yeah i feel like that's a big part of this like if there was a lot of dream logic happening in borman's film here it is debatable how much is happening in reality and how much is an artificial creation of nightmares i agree with you that the nun in the middle of the hallway there after they've discovered dyer's body is just 
like it has nothing to do with other than the fact that maybe whatever is happening with patient X who we've yet to meet at that point is just infecting. It's corrupting those who are just vulnerable enough to hear his radio signal. And when you put all of it together, like for me, Yes, I agree with you, Drew. It, it, this is messy. The ninth configuration is messy. It's it's got that sort of it sort of has that seventies Altman vibe to it to a degree where stuff is just happening and we happen to be filming it when it does. That kind well, of feel. And I think I think when you talk about that that one and done approach, um, it's one of the reasons that I think he puts this kind of ensemble together, this kind of cast together. You've got guys like George C. Scott and Ed Flanders, who these are really solid theater background actors who right. every single time you roll, they're going to be ready and they're going to give you something. Yeah. And it'll probably be a little different every time. But George C. Scott, that's part of the magic of this performance. And I'm going to go ahead and call it magic because... Yeah. Wow, what a performance. (laughs) And you've got J. Lee Cobb as Kinderman in the original and a terrific performance, a great character. Um, I think he and Jason Miller together. I think Jason Miller is a wildly underrated actor to begin with. And I think their scenes are really terrific and sad. And there's this wonderful friendship between them, which lends real weight to what Kinderman says here, that Karis was his best friend and that he, you know, he he wants to help Karis, that that's what pulls him in. Yeah. but that unevenness and and sort of that ragged thing and the surreality even goes to the way this was produced. The fact that there was some studio tampering, that um, Jason Miller wasn't originally in some of what they shot, and then they insisted that they put some Jason Miller in. And so you get Jason Miller sort of randomly dropped in in places. And if anything, it makes it more surreal and disconcerting because it it feels like reality itself is a little broken. Um, Mm -hmm. the way it works inside that room. Once you get into the room with Patient X, uh, things just aren't right. And I kind of love the fact that some of that is by design and some of that is almost like, well, this is what we have to work with, so I'm just going to kind of figure out how to cut it. And and it ends up working really well for him. I think it all becomes very heightened and very disconcerting and upsetting. Yeah. I mean, it starts right from the beginning when you have that little piece of dialogue that happens an hour later in the movie about falling down a long flight of steps. But mm-hmm. when you're first introdu- introduced to the the young boy who we later discover has been killed, we see him twice. You pass by him on the sidewalk once and he's kind of in the vestibule of a building. And then you continue down that block and all of a sudden he's there again with a rose in his hand. So which one was real? What, and already you're unmoored. I, I don't know that I picked that up the first time I saw it at the Burbank 12 uh, AMC, which is now a parking lot. Um, but every time I see it, uh, Gina, I'm like you, I always catch something yet again or rediscover something that I didn't quite grasp the first time that just makes this pop. It is both intentional and accidental and unnerving because you don't know what is real. Right, exactly. And that just, you know, much like the the first movie, it just creates such a good sense of unease. But yeah. here it's heightened by the, some of it's just funny too. Yes. Um, I, I saw it in the theater as well. Um mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and like Drew was mostly empty theater, but... <laughs> 
a moment that got a huge laugh and it's still funny, but also deeply unsettling is when that old lady is crawling around that ceiling. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. And it's cause she looks like a little bug because again, like, like the spider walk, it's sped up. Yeah. And, and it just, it's so just like, what the fuck? <laughs> and, and all you can do is just sort of nervously laugh. Like what is happening? Why is she on the ceiling? The same thing happening is I think it's like a collective delusion. I was going to say, I think that's the, the, the thing that is so odd about this film is that some of the visuals are almost high camp. They're so strange and they're so uh, outrageous. Yeah. But the subject matter itself, he takes faith so seriously that once you get into the conversations about who Patient X is and why this is happening, um, none of that stuff is campy at all. And so I think that that dissonance between those tones is another part of what leaves an audience going, I don't know how to react. I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. Am yeah. I, am I allowed to laugh at some of this? And yeah, you are. I think Blady is not, he's not unintentionally funny. He has a wicked sense of humor. I do think some of this stuff is supposed to kind of make you laugh and put you off balance. Yeah. I mean, there's the entire back and forth. There's a banter happening between, you know, Kinderman and, <laughs> uh, and father Dyer where you know, he's visiting him in the hospital. He's he's nervous about it. He runs off where Dyer can't see him. He literally runs into the scene and then collects himself and walks in. He's that yeah. nervous that he might lose another friend. Like he's at the end of his rope. And then they have this extended run of like this weird, like, why are you, you know, reading women's wear daily? Why aren't you reading the Bible? It's like the, the Bible doesn't have the latest fashions in it. And here you're getting everything that, you know, Blatty had said once he had written The Exorcist and it had become so huge that it had killed his comedy career. And here you see all of his comedy chops roaring right back into this. Like it's a, a lost Thin Man sequel. Well, and, and George C. Scott as well. George C. Scott is hilarious in big right. chunks of this film. Uh, and he knows, like, he knows exactly what meal he's having. And we we refer to the beginning of this to the carp scene. That's one of the greatest weird dialogue left turns. It's a tasty fish. I've got nothing against it. He's so good in that moment. I, I love him. And he and nails see, the ending of that it. scene. And you can see like Ed Flanders like really trying hard not to laugh. Oh, like, like, it makes you it makes you wonder. It's like, did Ed Flanders know all of what was coming? Because it's the little details that really it's the swimming up and down. It's so good. And yeah, and he is well aware that Kinderman is and Kinderman, when he's having to listen to other cops, Kinderman is rolling his eyes so loudly you can hear them rolling around in his skull. Like he can't believe how dumb some of his other policemen are. So all of that stuff, I think, lands as comedy, which is why... The, and I don't know if you guys have ever seen The Changeling with George C. Scott. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, beautiful, beautiful movie. And mm -hmm. I think what he does so well in that and in this is he never plays scared and he never plays, I don't believe this. He plays more like, I don't really understand what's happening and I think I'm curious and I'm going to keep pushing forward until I have an answer. And it's a weird thing to play because he's never selling you horror. 
And I think that's why it works because he's not overplaying it. He's not tipping his hand that you're supposed to be afraid here. I also feel like a lot of this has to do with an existential crisis that Kinderman is already having in process when all this stuff happens. Like he's already dissatisfied with the world as it currently works. He, He just, while he may have had many, you know, back and forth with Dyer about the existence of God and how it could possibly, the world can continue on in such a way that allows suffering to occur. It's just reached a point where if he sees one more dead kid, like he's just, he doesn't know what he's going to do. It's no country for possessed old men. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And this is where I feel like, uh, Blatty really understands, of course, because he was the source material for the original Exorcist and was a part of that creative process in making the movie. So, of course, he understands at the core what that film is about. Because Reagan is going through this, the point of it is to make everyone else lose faith. Everyone else begin to doubt and allow their suffering to fuel you know, the the plot point of The Exorcist. It's, and it's here, provocative because you don't have to be afraid of it to understand why it's a violation. Like the yeah. notion of taking your faith away from you. I don't have to share your faith for that to be upsetting. Yes. I, I think it's, a, it's, it's having a bigger conversation than I think a lot of people are used to having at the cinema currently. Um, so, and I also feel like so much of the world is tilted in terms of how much religion you're exposed to and not seeing it in a crowded theater where that sort of mass uh, hysteria begins to take hold. Um, we mentioned it in that, in the exorcist episode that we, we did, but there's this cultural impact of the exorcist documentary, which they just go to Westwood and sit in the lobby and watch people both go into the theater and then rush out being woken up with smelling salts. Like it just affected people. They became unmoored and collectively you you could do that. Yeah. When did the both of you see it? How old were you? And did you see it in a theater? Did you see it at home? What the actually original? The first, the, the first one. Oh, I mean, I was a little kid. I was a baby when it came out. And, I, and then I saw when they, I mean, I'd seen it on TV as a child. And then I saw when they did the um, the version you've never seen. I think that was maybe 2000. So I would have been in my late 20s then. And I wow. didn't catch it until my video store days. Um, probably right before going to the AMC 12 to see The Exorcist 3. Wow. I... Uh, when it came out, I didn't see the theatrical, the first run, but there was a second theatrical release a s- couple of years later. It was probably for the sequel. It was probably be- right before the sequel came out. Mm-hmm. And I had a babysitter who took me. Oh, oh my God. I, wow. I was I was seven years old and I saw it in theater. Documentary. Did she get hired oh. back again after that? Oh no. Oh no, 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 no. She was not allowed around us again. And I didn't sleep for like a week. Um, it was unreal. The impact that movie had, it landed on me really, really hard. Yeah. Um, I I saw it on, I saw it on TV uh, when I was about eight or nine. That was, that was enough on its own. And then later I saw all the stuff that had been cut. I'm like, wow. Okay. That's even worse than I imagined. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my first exposure to it would have been mad magazine. 
and oh, which, reprints uh, of Mad he, Magazine. And then there was this sort of syndicated 20th Century Fox uh, half hour that Ed Bosley would do voiceovers for. And it would basically be that's entertainment for just 20th Century Fox. Yeah, and they would I remember go that. Themes, and they had one that encompassed films just beyond 20th Century Fox. For whatever reason, they had some clips of The Exorcist, probably What a Wonderful Day for an Exorcism. And that was enough for me, man. I was a scaredy fucking cat. That that put me over the edge. Like, I was not going to get anywhere near this movie for, you know, another decade. Well, I didn't go near any horror film for about five years after that because I was like, is that what horror films are like? Well, fuck that. Because nope, that was great. That you can't do that in a theater. And I, so upsetting. So, yeah, I, it has always remained a very high bar for me. And I have to admit, when this came out, I was. I treated this badly because I was skeptical about anybody following up to The Exorcist and Exorcist 2 Poison the Well. So, completely that yeah. you, you yeah. were like oh, they can't they just aren't going to with distance i have really come to love this movie because i do think it's a very smart exploration of if if you did cast the demon out and it were to get hold of Karis's body and put a serial killer in there what an awful perverted way to get revenge on Karis for what he did and if you didn't what an awful thing to put in kinderman's head and what a yeah terrible game the whole thing is like it's a really smart interesting personal sequel that doesn't feel driven by studio notes no right up until the very end in which the entire end sequence is in fact driven by studio notes yes (laughs) to the point where you know they 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 drag a, a man who is jason miller at the time you know he was unfortunately an alcoholic and um, you hear in interviews that, you know, he wasn't really able to memorize the dialogue, he, sort of, quote unquote, wet brain had set in with him. Yeah. And so there's yeah. a lot of performance that's created in editing out of that re-shoot uh, sequence. This is where I think you get the shot in the arm that is Brad Dorf. Like, you can't underestimate how much Brad Dorf can do in your movie than sitting someone down and having them watch any minute of film that, that he has in this. Well, and he's not introduced until fairly late in the running time. And then all the tools that you give actors, you know, their hands and their body language and all these things. Yeah. He's in a straight jacket and he's shackled. And so for a lot of it, he's not even able to be mobile or do much. And he's yeah. magnetic. He's absolutely terrific here. Every time I watch this again, I am just struck by the fact that he's oh, crying God. through most of his dialogue. Oh, yeah. And it's so unsettling. His big monologues are incredible. And he and they go. He's one that ends with he takes a breath and he kind of looks around. And he's like, <laughs> I'm sorry. Was I was I raving is fantastic work. And the idea that he's kind of both inside and outside his body at the same time and kind of watching the show just like we are, that's kind of a perverted thing that he's playing that he's really good at because he's, it's constantly, he's aware yeah. of the show it's, he's putting he on. He is at that point trying to drive home how much he is 
uh, how much he's clearing the sand away underneath everyone's feet. Like you think you know what's going on, but I promise you it is so much worse than you have any idea. And he does uh, movies today. Uh, I hate to be that guy, but maybe I shall be that guy for a second would have immediately told you I bounce out of body. I bounce out of this body into another body. That's how I get around. And you won't know where I strike next. Like they will not hide the weenie in any way, shape or form. They will just tell you what the fuck is going on. This movie is like, you're going to have to figure that out as Kinderman figures that out. Yeah. There's little, there's little, there's little, there's little clues dropped like everywhere. Yeah. I would say it took me, it didn't help that, like I said, we had it at our theater. So I watched it in bits and pieces and then sat down uh, about a week into its run, watched the whole thing and then kept watching bits and pieces. And I just remained confused by it. It was a movie where I'm like, I know it adds up like it's but it's really not conventionally laid out. And it, it does. You have to look really pay attention to all the little pieces Bloody lays out there, but they're all in the movie. You also have to kind of decipher what's really happening, what isn't really happening. You know, most movies just don't go, hey, we're going to go to a train station in between heaven and hell. Now, hold on for a second. Now I'm going to get an NBA player and the guy from those romance novels. <laughs> they're angels. Uh, and <laughs> I always forget that's in there. And, and, and Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. I always forget that scene's in the movie. I just watched it today and I forgot that scene's in the movie. Oh, that's like one of my favorite scenes because like the like the, the dream sequence in the first one, it's just like, it's so like, it, it, it's, Oh, it's wild, yeah. I mean, when Kinderman goes, I'm sorry that you were murdered. Yeah. Like, they just falls out of his mouth like this is something you would say but it isn't something you would say in reality it would only be something that would happen that you would witness your subconscious doing in a dream and all of it is not sort of a a gory nightmarish world sort of dream sequence it's not it's not suspiria it's this other thing and where in the original film, there was a documentary feel to it. Here, there's a painterly feel to it. And it, yeah. it's like they're playing off different ends of, a, of a, a tennis court game. They're just batting ideas and concepts and filmmaking techniques back and forth. There's a real conversation happening between these two movies. And that doesn't make it easier. It makes it more interesting. And I'm... For all of us, I'm sure was, uh, you know, a little bit of our brain started flowing out of our ears as we watched it the first time. Well, I think Freakin is a filmmaker and like lives and breathes cinema, whereas I think William Peter Blady is a playwright yeah. first. And I think there's a lot of theater in him. So both Ninth Configuration and this to me feel like theater pieces where you're allowed to debate ideas and you're allowed to just put two people in a room and have them bounce something back and forth. And that's drama right. that he can find all the meat on that bone. He knows that this movie really boils down to the conversations right. in the room between Patient X and Kinderman. And if the movie's going to work, it's got to work in those scenes or nothing else matters. The rest of it's just window dressing. There is technical skill on display, which I don't know that he had the technology to accomplish in Ninth oh, yeah. Configuration. It feels like he definitely learned between films. And uh, yes. yeah, just that th- there's, there's a, a greater sense of visual ambition. You're correct. The uh, the helicopter dance, which 
is that heli- are they doing maneuvers? Are they a part of a search of some kind? You're not you don't really know why these three helicopters are hovering so close over the water and buzzing the buildings and circling around. You just know like their presence is seems wrong. This shouldn't be happening. And that is replicated throughout the movie where you're constantly seeing things that don't add up. uh, And that's really kind of the point is these leftover integers that create their own little math off to the side that throw everything off kilter. Well, I there's, there's that great early scene uh, when Cavanan uh, is it Canavan father Canavan, right. uh, who is the, the priest that's killed in the beginning. Uh, there is something so fundamentally uh, upsetting about a priest in a yeah. confessional being attacked. Um, and that that becoming an unsafe space because that is such a, uh, private, personal space for a Catholic and for somebody to go. And I think that's that's one of those moments where he really nails something that is um, hardwired into people. You know that that space is sacred, that that space is not to be invaded in that way. So it's great that he right away makes it so dangerous and terrifying. Yeah. Uh, and the reaction shots of <laughs> those two kids who are just like staring blankly like <laughs> from what oh what is that island uh, um oh shit where all the kids uh, are all born on the same day with blonde hair oh, oh uh, village uh, of the damned village of the damned yeah village of the damned yeah. they're on an island sure uh they, they just strike me as like some sort of village of the damned reference <laughs> i thought of, i stone face i thought they looked like uh they were they should be on the cover of bc andrews novel oh mm. sure <laughs> right Absolutely. Uh, And a scream that you don't know where it's coming from. I think all the religious perversions here are much creepier than in the exorcist where it's kind of, we we joked that it sort of looks like uh, something out of Beetlejuice, the sort of cone breasts that are put slapped onto the Virgin Mary. I, I was going to, I was going to say that too, that I, I feel that the, the violation of the church and the sacred places is more gut wrenching here than in the first movie. I would 100% agree I mean, that with you. Joker head on, on the same. Right. It's, another, and it's like, it's like the, with the old lady in the seal, you're like, you're laughing. You're like, <laughs> why is that there? You know? <laughs> oh God. You know what I mean? Is this the joke? Is the joke on me? And it's, you don't know. And so much of this is what you don't know working on you and working on you and working on you. If it doesn't work for you, I'll grant you. I don't think this is a movie that can and should work for everyone. It's one of those right down the middles where you're either into it or, oh man, that just doesn't work for me at all. And I think those are kind of valid uh, tax to take, but if it does work for you, baby, ooh, it works. Well, we talked about uh, when we when we covered the first Exorcist that you know how much these movies are going to affect you really depends a lot on the role of religion in your life at some point. Sure. Now, whether mm-hmm. you know you are currently religious or no longer religious, um, it, it's it's going to affect you in, in, in different ways. If this seems all like a load of hooey, it's just going to be, you know, you know, yeah, this is pretty cool looking. I guess it's a little scary, but if at some point this was, this was something you actually believed in yourself, 
uh, it's going to kind of keep you up at night sometimes. Um, I have to highlight one of the most disturbing presences in this entire film. Uh, every time I see it, a chill runs down my spine, and that is watching Larry King order a sandwich. It <laughs> feels wrong. Like, I know this was a part of reality. Larry King ordered many sandwiches over the years. But to capture it, you know, in uh, sort of a verisimilitude, uh, I still go, oh, suspenders. And uh, I, my feet fly off the floor. <laughs> Popcorn in the air. Uh, you had to get one joke in. Um, no, the, the, the performance that, that, uh, constantly wears away at my nerves is Nancy Fish as nurse Allerton. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, holy fuck. That is a very committed performance. Like it would be so nice if you were not here. I can't <laughs> wait for you to go away. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I cannot wait. <laughs> Um, it's, it's, geez, they're, like, they're also they're also like in one of those classic horror movie hospitals where she seems to be working every ward. Like yeah. she's she's in, she she she's in the psych and 24 ward twenty four hours a day. Yeah, yeah, she's in the psych ward. She's also taking care of a little kid. She's also taking care of geriatrics. She's always right. and again maybe the she fact was there fifteen years ago when a, a destitute guy like, yeah I mean and and, and, like, and maybe the fact that she's constantly there is is. Maybe that's on purpose again to add to that that sense of <laughs> that unease. would definitely like, explain explain the uh, the attitude because man, I'm sure everybody is on her last nerve at this point. Yeah, she's, <laughs> that she's, poor she's woman just, is she's overworked. Always there. <laughs> uh, yeah, they need a, a wider array of 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 coworkers. <laughs> they need to they need to rotate. They, they need. Uh, a lot of help there and they're down one entire nurse and a head um, at a certain point in this movie so <laughs> that does not help and that's gonna, yeah, that's gonna like, be more work on her plate mm-hmm. <laughs> well there's a lot of things falling into plates uh in this oh. motion picture and we because we covered prince of darkness uh, a couple months ago there's this thing that i always has begun to um uh, unnerved me a little bit and it's a, a reliability on uh individuals who have uh, mental difficulties or uh being used as a tool for evil right and uh carpenter uh manages to taekwondo that uh in they live into oh wait a second there's an unhoused population maybe maybe not using them as the tool of a liquid devil make them the good guys in a fight against you know, late stage capitalism as committed by aliens. And here, I think it's just an of a time thing where, and, and it's from the book Legion where, because they have lower defenses, you know, the, uh, our Gemini killer is allowed to float into their bodies and manipulate them to commit all these crimes. Yeah, it does seem like, it, and especially that hospital seems like such a great target-rich environment for that, where people sure. are just, everything's a little thin with them anyway. They are barely holding on to their mental capacities or their physical capacities. So, yeah, it seems like a, a perfect place for him to be able to do that. I mean, that radio conversation that oh. Gina mentioned earlier. That's a like, telephone. 
I love her. I love her. <laughs> oh, she's exactly great. How I'm, that's, how, that's exactly how I'm going to be when I'm, you know, 103 years old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're going to fuck with people yep. in that old folks home mm-hmm. so hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just spring it up on that, just spring it up on that ceiling and just crawling around, have, having me a look-see. Uh, I love, I, that, is, that is the same, that is the same old lady, right? That's the radio lady that's on the ceiling, yes, right? it is. Because at one point yes, she kind of turns her head and looks and she just smiles like, this is fun. <laughs> Creepy. Um, I, totally. <laughs> Love it. Oh, man. The performances in this movie, everyone is um, in the parlance, understands the assignment that they were given. I don't mm-hmm. feel like there's a lot of, uh, I don't know what's happening here or I don't know what is expected of me. Uh, the great George DeCenzo is here with <laughs> constantly either wearing uh, glasses or sunglasses yep. uh, forever, just unwilling to give up the information he has because he knows how Kinderman is going to react, man. That is a wonderful play of, of two actors who are like, what's our thing? And they decide on what that thing is. And then it just, every scene plays out consistently. I love it. I feel like Scott Wilson also comes in just making big choices here about oh, yeah. how how he's playing oh that dude. Big choices. Oh my and that's that's Huge. that should be the subtitle of the movie is just big choices because everybody <laughs> and they're indulged like it, yeah every like if this is what you're gonna do okay you're gonna chain smoke you're gonna refer to notes in the middle of a conversation. Make it happen. Yeah, you're you're, you're you a medical feeling- professional. You have a nudie photo on your office wall. <laughs> you get the feeling the only note he ever had for the cast was, okay, give it about 10 more percent. About 10 more percent. <laughs> I just, I feel, I feel a like lot that of that for George C. Scott. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like the Scott Wilson was handed the, the script for, for this. He came home, you know, was looking through it, turned on the TV, and Twin Peaks came on. And he's like... <laughs> Looks up, looks back down to script, looks back up, looks down. Uh-huh. I think I got this. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then okay. it goes to set the next day. I'm ready. What if in every scene I have a cigarette, but in my other hand is an invisible cigarette? Like it wants a cigarette in that hand also. And then my favorite bit out of this whole thing, straight out of Lloyd Bridges and Airplane, <laughs> is this picture of him on the wall next to him. Like th- there's so much quote unquote divine comedy happening here. Like it's all very intentional. Well, the thing is, is that is is one of the weirdest scenes with him is when he's rehearsing what he's going to say to George C. Scott about who patient, how they came to find patient X. But then you realize later that he's rehearsing that for a reason because he already knows who patient X is. Yeah. And so he's trying to, 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 you know, sound like he's t- he's not lying, and you know, but what sounds funny ends up being sort of tragic later because then you he ends up committing suicide because you know he was he was threatened with you know hell and eternal torture if he didn't sure. bring bring Kinderman to to bring Kinderman to the devil. Uh, yeah, oh my God, it's just uh, it's unhinged in a very interesting and delightful way. He's he's at a, a very sharp point, and. As such, like all of the moves here kind of cut deeply. They they work in the fashion that was designed for this motion picture. And I think the 
one part that feels slightly out of it because it was mandated by this the the studio is Nicole Williamson, who really yeah. only gets to that full bore foot to the floor Nicole Williamson we all know and love uh, at the very end where yeah. he just reaches deep into that throat voice and hey, all of a sudden Merlin comes roaring out. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's why you hire Nicole Williamson. I think we all figured it out, everybody. <laughs> I just realized Nicole Williamson may be the junction point between John Borman and William Peter Blady. No. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. A, a man they who knows do. how to make a performance in ADR because no, because Borman doesn't like microphones on set for some fun. Oh, reason. yeah. Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> but definitely, I think they both appreciate a guy that will go that far for you when you give him permission. Yeah. Well, I just want to talk about for a moment, the one thing that I would love to walk into the theater to watch, and I I figured out exactly how to time it so that I could walk in and see it every single time and make sure that I wasn't Mm -hmm. opening and closing the door and distracting people right as it happened. But the jump scare is maybe one of my favorite jump scares I've ever seen in a movie. Mm -hmm. And watching it in the theater every single time somebody would come out of their seat. It, it yeah. physically would would cause somebody to get up, and I just that was incredible to me. Like the, the, I've seen a lot of good jump scares play out. I've never seen one as reliable as that. I because I, I know it's become de rigueur to talk about it online. Like it's no longer a, a great hidden secret necessarily. But what is so incredible about it is its patience. It yeah plays with how you perceive that hallway scene for a really long time. There's lots of little red herrings too, little hand sure. motions and things right at the edge of the, the like hallway. And it's like, is that a thing? Is that something? Mm-hmm. No, that's not a person. Wait, never mind. Okay. It's like there, he really screws with you because people are crossing. You're becoming overly familiar with the shot. You, you become over the course of that nearly three and a half minutes, um, you really know what is supposed to be there, what isn't supposed to be there. And it takes so long in sort of normal cinematic pacing that it you keep, okay, I know some something's going to happen. Something's got to happen. Okay, was that the thing? No, that she, she just disturbed somebody who was already asleep. Okay, back out to the hallway. Someone's coming in? No, that's a cop. Oh, she's going to go over there? No, it's fine. She opens the door, starts to close it, looks in, closes it again, and then walks the other way. And the camera's like, oh, wait a second. And pushes right into that. (laughs) And then comes out through the door. Like, oh, my God, the timing, the patience, all of that takes. I know lots of filmmakers have studied the fuck out of that to try to make it work. And only a few people are really able to match that rhythm. I think there's something there's there's something really upsetting about the physical how quick the person is who walks across yeah. the hall. It's not a slow move. They basically storm across the hall and then the camera move at the same time. It's the combination of those two things that it's physically jarring. And the fact that we've been shown how those shears work and oh. how the the amount of damage it can actually do. Like, you think about it mentally, 
and then it shows you about to happen and you don't see anything like it's it should be studied in school it's just that fucking good and talking and and i don't think you get there without skill without the pacing leading up to it without the mood and every minute going towards that like that that requires real directorial voice and patience in talking about the shears uh that reminds me of a scene earlier in the movie uh when they determined that that is the you know the the weapon that's being used and uh and again, there's that buildup where George C. Scott's like, why does this have a label on? He goes, oh, that's that's new. It's new? Yes. It's a replacement? Yes. Well, where's the other one? <laughs> it's just like, and then, well, uh-huh. that's a good question, George. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that is a real good question. And again, shows you why he's the detective in the movie and we're not, you know? Right. But also, why is no one looking for this? <laughs> This is a really poorly run hospital. Let's just come right yeah, do, do bones Do giant spring-loaded bone shears disappear often from hospitals? <laughs> just order a new one. <laughs> just get in that catalog that, that seems and like get a, that one That seems over. like a report should be filed. Right. And what, yeah. what catalog was that thing in? Because I'm pretty sure there's a watch list for anybody who gets that catalog in the mail. It's whatever, it's that uh, medical supply warehouse from uh, Return of the Living Dead. That's uh-huh. where you get that. Uh-huh. They have that in a box somewhere. They ship it off to you across the country. There's some, I, of course, everything that's on screen kind of works. And then you kind of get into that third act and the special effects because it, they just start to get dodgy. They, they're they just, yeah. they're not fully planned uh, whatever they were rushed, whatever it was. But perhaps my favorite is when George C. Scott is pinned against the wall and starts to get derezzed like he's in Tron. That's the weirdest moment. And I actually had to play the Blu-ray back today because I didn't remember the effect. And it's, it is an oddball visual swing they take there. Yeah. He's just sort of like, he's just sort of like rippling. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and because like, he doesn't do it at all for the rest of the movie, which is why it's such a strange choice. It's like if it's it's like if in altered states he had just done the arm thing one time, and then never again for the whole rest of the movie, and they never referred to it. Or it's just such a strange choice. It's like they something needs to happen here. Is what you you feel the studio note was. Mm-hmm. You can't just pin him up against the wall. Something has to happen to him. And and someone's like, I don't know. We like derez him like he's in Tron. Like sure, okay, <laughs> that's a choice. I, I guess we have a thing on this show where we happen to come across a lot of what we call phantasm pits. This is where the floor disappears, and all of a sudden there's a ghostly nether world underneath. Usually it happens with beds, like in Nightmare on Elm Street, mm-hmm. where Absolutely. all of a sudden, Freddy has the ability to make a fucking phantasm pit. Sure, why not? Here, uh, lightning strikes the tile floor, and all of a sudden, a phantasm pit opens up. And then what I always forget until the last second is you actually see that poor Trent kid headless with that Sambo, you know, blackface Christ thing. Like, Oh Jesus Christ. It's terrible. Yeah. It's, it's 
now I can't unsee it, but my brain's like, no, 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 you don't need this here, and yanks it away until the next time I watch the movie. The the way that final sequence, and I know it's because, you know, we're looking at a lot of fingerprints on that, that scene, but the way it plays to me, it always feels like when I was younger, I would go to one of my grandmother's houses who had cable, and we didn't have mm. cable yet, and I would stay up as late as I could to watch any movie that I could. And I would always fall asleep in front of the television. And then I'd wake up at like 4.45 because there was a loud noise. And I'd wake up and some crazy shit would be happening on my TV. And I would have zero context for any of it. And typically it would be like an Italian something. And I'd be like, why does the monkey have a straight razor? And then I go back to sleep. (laughs) And it would just be like, and so that's how I would remember those, those bits and pieces of movies. That's how the whole ending of this film feels. It feels like I'm nodding in and out of a scene and I'm only getting parts of it. So, yeah, Yeah, I mean, we've got a pretty, pretty understated as far as violence is concerned movie. I mean, everything is more, is more implied than shown. And then, and then we get it. Then we get a, a, a priest getting like, like half his skin peeled off. Like, like, like he's in a hellraiser. Yeah, he's getting he's getting peeled like an orange on that ceiling. That's uh the yeah, little Greek chorus that comes out of the floor uh with Jason Miller looks like in Scrooge when the uh the ghost of Christmas past opens its robe and you see them the uh people inside the robe in his rib cage. It's, oh, yeah. it, they look almost <laughs> identical. Oh god, the way his face peels away. When you when you talk about uh, sort of the how graphic the ending of this movie gets, it's so strange because up until then, I honestly feel like this film almost skirts PG-13 territory. It's so not graphic in terms of how they handle even the ideas of what the Shears do and stuff. It's largely implied, not shown. I think this movie could have gotten away with it, except somebody at the studio realized Oh my God, we have to get an R. It's the exorcist, right? Everything that is incongruous with this really feels like Morgan Creek, you know, pushing and prodding and going, well, this isn't what we signed up for. And, and I have to want, like you had the script. You, you, you knew the person who was directing this. Yeah. You, you knew what his intentions were. So when your pre, you know, it, it just seems to me like someone goes, well, I know what the exorcist is and this isn't the exorcist. Like, yeah. He's making Legion, everyone. It's it's That's, the Halloween 3 problem where you made a good yeah. film, but the title sets a table that uh, some of the audience just isn't going to be able to get past. Like, they're just not going to be able to get their heads around the fact that it's not the thing that the other thing called this was. And it's just not allowed. You know, in the Halloween sense, it's not allowed to be an anthology. But, oh, my God. The the movies we could have had I know. Halloween I was know. a fucking anthology. Yeah, <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> we were so fucking robbed, so robbed. <laughs> <laughs> fucking Universal. Uh-huh. <laughs> Drew, you were didn't weren't you a tour guide for a bit? I was. I was a tour guide. Um, I did Halloween Horror Nights first in ninety one. Mm-hmm. Okay, and. Uh, I was Leatherface and ended up winning <laughs> best scare in the park because they put me in the best place. And so right. I got to just scare the shit out of tourists. It was phenomenal. <laughs> put me inside of a long metal uh, like storage container. And when I heard the tram go by, I would start the chainsaw inside the metal container. So it just was amplified. 
And then they oh. had me in a safety line so I could run down the metal container, pop out the door and jump at the tram and not quite reach it and get yanked back at the last <laughs> second. And I I was so sore by the end of it every night, but it was so much fun. And yeah. Uh, be, and then after that became a tour guide was there while they were shooting Jurassic Park. Um, okay. So it was right, right around that time, 92 and into 93 and uh, worked there mm. through basically the end of that year. Uh, loved it. Terrific yeah. job. Yeah. Um, I was, I was there 96 when the ride Jurassic Park, the ride opened. Okay. Um, All right. And then I bounced around and, and uh, ended up, I ended up going to Japan and opening Universal Studios uh, Osaka. But oh, wow. La- okay. One of the last one of the last things I did was the first reopening of Halloween Horror Nights because it oh, had nice. that it had an accident and, and they they couldn't figure out how to do it. And, but Orlando was doing so well with it. They just they finally kind of figured it out. Um, so that was the first year back. And the the horror history at Universal is so rich and vaunted. And, you know, oh, yeah. occasionally they like the big thing was like, oh, we're going to open a, a house of a thousand corpses maze because we have this movie. And then they ended up shelving the fucking movie. <laughs> but you still have a maze based on it. Um, it's just a miscalculation where people go like, I know what horror is, but when they see it, and that was a long way to go for that. But um, it's one of those things where people have an idea of what horror is. And then you're actually confronted with the very elastic nature of what horror can actually do. And this is why I think doing the exorcist has been an interesting diversion for us because it is a many tentacled thing. It, it it's a it's an accordion that allows you a whole lot of space to dip into comedy, to dip into the surreal, and not everyone is attuned to how far and how stretchy horror can get. They have a a linear thing. It's horror is this. I mean, we've seen it just the past week with *Malignant*, where people are like. It was already going to be a 50-50 of whether you were into it or not. But then you always have the horror isn't this. And it's like, fuck you. It sure is. Fucking is. I'll give you a dozen examples that it's that. Uh, I, I agree. I think it's, uh, it is my favorite genre simply because of the elasticity. And because I think you can talk about anything. There's any topic that you want to talk about, especially topics that are big, important, significant real things that affect our literal everyday lives, I think you can talk about them in horror. And I think that's one of the the safest places you can do it because you can wrap it in monsters and tentacles and goop and you can have the big scary conversation and it's a little less scary somehow. Um, And I think putting a name on these things really helps. It's Blighty really takes this seriously. And so many possession movies are supernatural light shows. They're just designed to, you know, you get the low end rumble and the monster end of it. And it's designed to be gory and gross. And I think he really is more interested in the spiritual damage done by any encounter with evil, by by actually having to debate it, by having to get in there and have conversations with it. What kind of rot does that create? And I think... You know, Kinderman, by the end of the movie, having to pull the trigger on Karis, it doesn't matter because no matter 
no matter the the even if the let's take it all as literal. Let's say that it actually is the Gemini killer in actually Karis's body, and that Kinderman has to do this. It is such a magnificent loss for him because not only will he lose his livelihood and his career and most likely go to jail, but it's his best friend that they made him do this to. It's such a victory in every sense of the word on behalf of Patient X. It, it's a pure win. Uh, to me, that's that's real horror. There is something great about pushing somebody past their breaking point and there's no way for them to get out of it. It's the only way that Kendra, it's the only thing he can do. And my God, what a terrible thing to do. Uh, I, that's where I feel it's greatest connection to the original exorcist. And it's just not visceral enough for some, but for me, the, the idea that he's already weary of the world that he lives in the idea that seeing innocence corrupted, that his friends been stolen from him, the loss of, comfort in increasingly uncomfortable circumstances with particularly terrible co-workers just seeing death pile up in front of him is beginning to remove his humanity and the idea that the only way he could possibly regain it is to shoot his best friend in the head that he thought died 15 years ago uh. is- yeah. That's a real <laughs> fucking gut baby they don't yeah. they don't make those every That's day That's a bummer no. And on that note, let's liven things up, why don't we? Let's play Choose Your Own Death Venture. And that is where we decide, of the many deaths presented, strangely enough, in uh, The Exorcist 3, if you were to to die in one of those ways, which one would you choose and why? Now, we have a lot of decapitation going on here. We've got decapitation plus being uh, having ingots driven into your eyes and uh, being crucified on rowing oars, which is a lot. That, that's a lot for anyone. You've got decapitation, having uh, your middle finger chopped off uh, in confessional. And then we have had it, having your head chopped off and having your bodily organs taken out and rosary stuffed in and sewn back That's up. a lot of rosaries. For, that's a lot of rosaries. That's a lot I mean, of rosaries. She, She's not a big gal or anything like that, but that, rosaries don't take up a ton of room. So they're like a, they're like a, they're like the size of a necklace, <laughs> well, quite literally. Um, and then uh, who else? Well, we have our Gemini killer who is uh, shot three times uh, to the body, one to the head. We also have Nicole Williamson's father mourning, who's peeled like yeah, an let, orange let's assume, on the let's assume that he died. I mean, we don't, we don't see well, him take his last breath, but well, I really hope he did. Yes. Yeah. That, that, those are, those are not survivable injuries. Really pulling for death in that case. <laughs> we have all your uh, blood being uh, pumped out of your body until there's barely any, a drop left. And then you get your head chopped off. And then uh, I, I think, that's all of them. Ba, 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 ba. Oh, uh, Dr. Temple commits suicide, but then we're not including that. That's ridiculous. He isn't killed. He kills himself. So we're taking that right off the table. Besides, <laughs> I don't want any of you to smoke as much Damn as he. Damn it. That was the one I was going to pick. <laughs> well, none of them, don't make it none easy of them are good. No, they're all bad. And so which one are you going to choose? Drew, you're our, our guest. You get to go first. I am uh, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to go with the nurse in the hallway. And here's why, okay. because while I do think there is a, um, there's a good chance that 
as the Gemini killer explains, he's going to play with my head and shit for a while and I'm going to get to watch stuff and <laughs> sure. it's yeah. like, it's not going to be great. I get the feeling the actual <laughs> decapitation part is going to be super quick because um, yes. it looks like it's going to be maybe another two seconds after what we see in the film. So I'm hoping that one at least goes fast. I get it over with, you know, I get to watch a little something and then I'm out. And um, yeah. I, it, so many of the others seem like there's a lot of involved busy work, uh, ingots and blood yeah. pumping and uh, too much, too much. Just yeah. get it done. Get me out. I'm good. Yeah. Everything's going to happen to you after the fact. And the bonus is very comfortable shoes. Absolutely. Pillows on your feet, baby. That's <laughs> that's the way you want to go. Uh, Gina, what say? Well, you? I would normally say because I am a, a big fan of showmanship, as I as I mm-hmm. mention often when we cover our episodes of Hannibal. Um, I, I would <laughs> say initially that I would take Father Dyer, but yeah. I am really stuck on that whole. Well, they shot them full of this this medication that paralyzes you, but you're awake and aware. Which I would say that that is one of my worst fears, but I think that as reasonable human beings, that is everybody's worst fear of, of, you know, being unable to move, but aware of and able to feel what is happening to your body. So thank you, sir. I will not be taking that exit. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, if I say, you know, shot three times, does that mean I have to go through 15 years of suffering up to that point? I mean, you're. I don't know how he goes to the bathroom. I think that's the biggest thing for me. He he, he doesn't look to be wearing comfortable clothes. I mean, that's that that cell looks pretty cruddy. Yeah. I think they just let him go right there. A lot of electronic equipment, so it's really wired. So you got that going for you. Yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm gonna take just shot three times, and, and I get to spend a lot of time monologuing beforehand. And I, as you as you know from doing this show with me for five years, I do like to talk. See, that's why I'm going that way, too, because I love a, a good, you know, Irene Ryan monologue. And I get a whole, I get sheets and sheets and sheets of words to memorize, uh, plus sitting around for 15 years getting shot full of drugs. Like, OK, I, I'm fine. And, you, and, and, and the best part is you have other people doing your work for you. <laughs> and, and, and also i'm a very easy crier so in in, in addition <laughs> to that all that monologue i would be doing with just the tears just flowing and i do look good with uh curly hair <laughs> I, I learned that once upon a time in my theater days um so that just about does it before we go uh let's do some plugs drew you've got a lot going on currently and you produce a lot of cool content why don't you tell people what you're doing and where they can find it well thank you sir um First, you can uh, find me at drewmcweeny.substack.com, which is my formerly dangerous newsletter. Um, And that is my current film reviews. I'm also doing a a lot of uh, classic film reviews um, and a lot of cultural commentary. I'm trying to write about the industry uh, with the idea being that I feel like most of what you read these days is marketing. It is all written before a film comes out. It is all designed to be read and digested before a film comes out. And then by the time you can actually talk about the movie, the media has moved on. They're on to selling you the next thing. And I really feel like the conversation is backwards. So I'm trying to trying to do that with Formerly Dangerous and get back to the notion that it's a conversation. It's not a lecture. It's, mm-hmm. you know, you should be able to see the movies we're talking about as well. That makes sense to me. Um 
And then the other thing that I'm doing is uh, for anybody who enjoyed 80s all over, the podcast that I was part of with Scott Weinberg, um, we were just not able to finish the podcast. Uh, so I have now gone back and I'm doing the project as a newsletter. And that is at the last 80s newsletter.substack.com. And uh, I've started with January of 1980. I'm going to review every single film of the decade, uh, everything. Big, little stuff you've never heard of, stuff that you've heard us talk about five million times. Uh, 2,800 film reviews over the course of the decade. So uh, five bucks a month for that, and I think it's an insane value. I, I agree with that. I, I, I am part of the the formerly dangerous and i really enjoy the 80 stuff as well i just i just think you're a very good writer and i think Thank you're you, very considerate of of film and um you know i i enjoy what you bring to it and uh, the the reverence and irreverence that you use to talk about it uh, i encourage everyone to give it a whirl i, I think it's definitely worth the price of admission uh, and there are free ones you can check out. And then uh, if you like it, uh, if you sign up for both, it's a grand total of $10 a month. So, I mean, come go. on. It's a bargain at twice the price. <laughs> Gina, where can people find you on these here internets? I am a writer at thespool.net. I, so my recent reviews are the not at all polarizing malignant. Uh, <laughs> no, no one has. No one had, no one, one had strong opinions on that whatsoever. Uh, well, it how a, they? It's so conventional. <laughs> it really is. Uh, and I will seen it by a time, million times. By the time, yeah, I know. Come on, man. I've seen it. Yeah, I mean, show me something new. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, by the time this goes up, I will have written a 40th anniversary retrospective on my favorite horror movie, Mommy Dearest. Um, there you go. And nice. I will have I will be covering uh, Mike Flanagan's um, new joint. Um, the name of which has suddenly slipped my mind. So Midnight Mass. Midnight Mass. Thank yeah. you. I'm doing very there well this evening. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> I, I'm also on Twitter under Porcelain72 and on Instagram under Gina Does Things. G-E-N-A Does Things. Do it today, people. Check it out. You can find us on your socials. We have the Tee Public Store for all of our T-shirts. Um, rate and review us on iTunes. Tell us what your favorite uh, death was in this movie or any of the ones we covered or not covered. If you do that, we will talk about your review on the air. That is our solemn promise to you, the Kill by Kill listener. But don't worry, folks. Uh, just, be just because we're, we're saying goodbye, the body count will continue. For myself, for Gina, and for Drew, bye-bye, everybody. Bye.